We're in Matthew chapter 1 this morning. Matthew chapter 1. As we move into this Advent season, we're going to go through most of Matthew chapter 1, a little bit into chapter 2 on the third week right before Christmas. But this morning we'll just look at the beginning part of Matthew chapter 1. More than 3 million people subscribe to Ancestry.com, maybe some of you do, where you, you dig into historical records, into census data, into old news clippings, things that you try to, to, to find some, some stuff out about your ancestors. Sometimes you get your own DNA done and you add that to the mix, all to try to build a genealogy, try to sort out that line of ancestors that came before you. Occasionally there are interesting discoveries as you do that, you, you find family members way back that you're excited about and others that maybe you're not so proud of. As you track back, there was a lady who had shared her story about finding that her grandmother's great-grandfather, there's a news clipping about him, how he got into a bar fight near Altoona, Pennsylvania and killed a man in self-defense. And that was part of her discovery of her past. So we'd like to think if we go back far enough, we're going to find something special, maybe some royalty or something like that, but the reality is if we go back far enough, we'll probably find a scoundrel or two along the way. At the time of the birth of Jesus Christ, genealogies were extremely important. It was something that Jewish families put a great deal of emphasis on. Inheritance, uh, family leadership, birthright, all of those things mattered, and, and, and perhaps most significantly of all was tracing the line of King David, following the line from David down through the royal lineage to see if, if perhaps they would have a son who would be the sent one to sit on the throne of David. Some Jewish families at the time of Jesus could trace their genealogies back 2,000 years to one of the 12 sons of Jacob, to one of the, the tribes of, of Jacob, and, and those who couldn't had likely lost their genealogical information at the time of the Babylonian captivity, um, back around 586 BC. Much was destroyed at that point. And for the rest who did have those well-kept genealogies, nearly all were wiped out in AD 70 after Christ, when the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem. And so there's no longer that ability to trace back to King David. But at the time of the birth of Jesus, genealogies were enormously important, and we'll see that this morning here in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew's gospel was written by one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Matthew is identified in chapter 10 as a tax collector, and so we would presume from what we know of tax collectors that he was very literate, that no doubt in his native Hebrew, but also in Greek with which to communicate to the government, so somebody who would be skilled at record-keeping and writing. Uh, in addition, Matthew's gospel, just the tone of it, it's clear that he is describing a record of Jesus Christ that is largely geared toward his fellow Jewish readers to show them Jesus as the Messiah, to show them Jesus as the, the long-awaited one that they were anticipating. And so he is going to show Jesus as the fulfillment of, of Old Testament prophecy. Matthew uses or quotes the Old Testament more than twice as much as any of the other gospel writers because he is repeatedly pointing back to that truth to show that it is now fulfilled in Jesus. Matthew's goal is to show that Jesus is the Savior, not only for them, but also that he is the Savior who has come for people of all nations. Because in fact, at, at the time we get to the end of Matthew, we see the, one of the most explicit statements of the Great Commission. It is Matthew who records Jesus as saying that as you are going, you are going to make disciples of 
all nations. It's not just a, an exclusive club. It's not a strictly ethnic matter of just to the Jews. But in fact, Matthew is going to take us to see that Jesus's mission is to spread the gospel to people of every nation. Here at the very start of Matthew, in, in verse 1, he is going to those signal out two key names so that his Jewish readers immediately get sort of an historical framework. And in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The word for genealogy also has the idea of just a story to it. So it's kind of the, this is the story. This is Matthew recording the account of Jesus Christ. But, but he is very specific right from the beginning to pick out two names in particular and say he is the son of David. He is the son of, Jesus, uh, son of Abraham, Jesus Christ is. He is expressing two things. He is the son of Israel's greatest king, King David. So he is in the royal line. He is in that lineage. And he is the son of the recipient of God's promise to provide blessing to all the nations. The promise to Abraham that, that God would make Abraham a great nation, but then would be a blessing to other nations. And so from the start, what Matthew is saying is, here he is. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It is Matthew's way of heralding the fact that here he is. Here is the long-anticipated Savior of Israel, this mighty warrior who will come on the throne of David and who with great strength will, will bring about the kingdom. In fact, will bring about God's kingdom and bless the nations. Here is the Messiah. Now, having been foretold in the Old Testament, now being unfolded to us by Matthew. So Matthew begins with a genealogy. This just stresses to us now, here's, here's the importance. He's identified son of David, son of Abraham, but now he's going to show us and, and give us a genealogy to say, here's how it goes from father to son, from father to son, from Abraham to Jesus, taking us through these generations to show that Jesus descends from this line of kings. At its most obvious level, the purpose of this genealogy is really to, to, fitting with what Matthew's purpose is for the gospel, is to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of two of God's chief promises that the Israelites clung to. The promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 of blessing and the promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 of this eternal line of this forever kingdom. That is given to David in 2 Samuel 7. The Abrahamic covenant, God is saying to Abraham, I will make a great nation of you, that you will have seed as innumerable as the stars in the sky, and I will make a nation of you, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. This didn't happen in Abraham's lifetime, didn't happen for Isaac or for Jacob who followed after him. God begins to build that great nation through Abraham. He begins to grow it and, and then through Isaac and Jacob. But the blessing to all of the nations is not yet fulfilled at this point. It's still awaiting fulfillment. And then the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 is God promising to David that there would be an everlasting great line that would follow from David. And so in 2 Samuel 7, 12, God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you, you shall, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
In the most immediate sense, this is partly fulfilled in David's son Solomon because he builds the, the house of God. He builds, the, he oversees construction of the temple in Jerusalem. And so there's the partial fulfillment of this, but the forever part of this, that I will establish his throne forever, that has not come to pass through Solomon because in fact, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who comes on the throne, immediately divides the nation. By his own foolishness, he brings about the tearing apart of the nation of Israel now into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And so this forever throne is already on the way out at the time of Rehoboam. And yet, 2 Samuel 7, 16, the Lord repeats to David what we read in verses 12 and 13. Your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so it's a promise that still anticipates some fulfillment. There's still something to come that the Jewish people know is in the future. Old Testament history tells us that David ruled around 1,000 B.C., move about 400 years later, and Babylon comes in and ransacks Jerusalem and deports the people, and, and the kingship over the Jewish people ends at that point. There is no longer a Jewish king on the throne. They are now under the rule of Gentile nations, and there are surrogates and governors and others who are put in charge, but the line of kings for the Jewish people ends at that point, and so there's some point in the future to them that there must come one who will reestablish the line of David. And so God's promise to anoint from David's line a, a king who would rule eternally is still awaiting fulfillment. Matthew's genealogy then, the purpose of it is to say these two promises that you have known, that you have been taught, that you have believed, they are going to be fulfilled in this one. He is the son of Abraham, the one through whom covenant blessing comes. He is the son of David, through whom the line, the royal line now, will build into a lasting kingdom. That's the big picture. Within this genealogy, though, there are some fascinating names and stories as you begin to read through this of people that we see at various points in the Old Testament. It's not simply given to us just to be a, a list of names to get us from point A to point B, from Abraham to Jesus. There is, within these stories in this genealogy, I want to submit to you this morning a, a wonderful, marvelous display of God's grace in this genealogy. It is just a testimony to God's grace being at work through this. And we're going to see that this morning. Matthew's genealogy of Jesus Christ is a display of God's grace through his wise providence, his generous love, and his expansive reach. I'm going to read this passage, uh, Matthew 1. Let's start in verse 2, and then we'll go all the way down through verse 17. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, Amos the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. One more segment. 
And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Elikim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom... Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Here's the little insider tip. If you're ever called on in a group to read from the Old Testament and its names, say them boldly. Say them confidently. You probably on some of those said, oh, I always thought it was pronounced that way, but he said it so confidently it must be pronounced that way. <laughs> See, I, I learned that from years of working in radio where you learn when you stumble on something, you don't call attention to it. You just sound confident about it. All right. Within the details of this genealogy of Matthew now are, are just these fascinating names and a lot of kings, 15 kings listed in this genealogy. Most of them, we go from David to Jeconiah, about at least half of them on this list, are singled out in some way for sinful behavior. Not only in some cases accomplishments, but in some cases mixed stuff, and in some cases just pure evil. As, as we go back through the record of the kings, you've got Ahaz in verse 9 who burned his son as an offering to false gods and made sacrifices and offerings to idols. His grandson Manasseh in verse 10 was even worse. Manasseh put his son to death as a child sacrifice to pagan idols, built altars to other gods, resorted to fortune tellers and mediums to try to connect him with the dead in some way. Manasseh didn't just follow the ways of the, the godless nations around him. Manasseh surpassed those nations. Scripture even points that out in 2 Kings, I should say, 21.9, where it says he led Judah, this is Manasseh, into more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So the, the same nations that God said to his people, you must cleanse these nations out, you, you must not mingle with them. And here is Manasseh now surpassing them in terms of the evil things that he did and led Judah into. Then there's Rehoboam, we've talked about, the son of Solomon, who as a young man takes office and immediately begins to put a taxing burden on the people and divides the kingdom. And then finally, Jeconiah, as it's described, is the one who is there at the deportation to Babylon. He does evil in God's sight by bowing the knee to Babylon and essentially saying to the Babylonians, take what you want, pillage the place, go into the temple, take the gold, whatever you take, just don't kill me whatever it takes to, to make you happy. And he sacrifices everything around him in order to preserve his own life. These guys were kings, descendants of David, and yet their evil is seen before us. And it is great. It is given in scripture again and again, these accounts. The sin of David himself in 2 Samuel 12, who abuses his authority, who steals the wife of one of his loyal soldiers and then conspires to have that soldier killed in battle. We could go all the way back to Abraham, the great patriarch. We know Abraham's story. He is called by God to go to this new land, and in the process of going to the new land, when he is in Egypt, 
He tells his wife when the Egyptian ruler is there, tell her that you're my sister and not my wife because they'll kill me in order to take you. And so out of self-preservation, he says you should lie and, and exposes her to sexual abuse at that point by doing so. And God must intervene even later after he receives God's covenant promises. Abraham does the same thing again with another ruler and says the same thing to his wife. Just say you're my, my sister that way. I, I will have my life preserved. And so in, in both instances, lacking faith in God to protect him and, and coming up with different means to try to sort that out. There is not a blameless person in this list. All sinned. Some, like David, we could see in, in Psalm 53 with his repentance, but, but many of them without even a hint of remorse, sinning blatantly, high-handedly against the very God who is using them for his eternal purposes, as we're seeing here. There's four women in this genealogy as well. The, the, having the name of a woman in a Jewish genealogy at this point in history was rare, especially if she was not an ethnic Jew and especially if she was involved in some sordid moment in the course of Israel's history, as are all four in this case, either ethnically not Jews or, or certainly involved in some historically memorable moment. Tamar, mentioned in verse 3, pretended to be a prostitute, in order to become pregnant by the father of her deceased husband. That's one you sort of have to think through for a second there. Rahab was a prostitute, was a Gentile prostitute in Jericho. She does indeed come to recognize the Israelites as being God's people, as having power as God's people, and she hides the spies, but she is a Gentile prostitute. Ruth was a Gentile from the idol-worshiping nation of Moab. Moab is repeatedly seen in the Old Testament as a thorn in the side of the Israelite people and as one that God prophesies their ultimate judgment and destruction. And then, of course, there's Bathsheba, who is given to us in Scripture as the wife of Uriah the Hittite, coming from a Canaanite background, and also the stark reminder of David's sin with her. This is the genealogy of Israel's Messiah. This is, the, this is the line from which comes the King, the Messiah, the, the Savior, everlasting God, Prince of Peace, Emmanuel, Wonderful Counselor. His ancestry is prostitutes, Gentiles, schemers, murderers, idolaters, all sinners. And it is from this line that God brings forth his son in the incarnation. It is from this remarkably sordid line of ancestry that God is at work to bring about the birth of his son, Jesus Christ. And so when we read Matthew's genealogy of Jesus Christ, we are seeing a display of the grace of God. And I want to just look at three facets of that for the rest of our time this morning. First is his wise providence. It is God's providence at work here. Providence is one way of describing a facet of God's sovereignty, of God's rule. Providence is not a word that's found in the Bible, but the, what providence is, is seen all throughout the scripture. It describes something we see from beginning to end in the Bible. Providence is the exact opposite of chance or fate. It is God superintending history. It is God orchestrating things to fulfill his will. It is God accomplishing his work and ensuring that all of creation carries out his sovereign purposes. Providence is how God governs his 
creation and accomplishes his will. One commentator describes Matthew's genealogy like this. Matthew's point here is profound. So much is Jesus the focal point of history that his ancestors depend on him for their meaning. In other words, God sovereignly directed the history of Israel and preserved David's line because of his plan to send Jesus. It's a wonderful explanation of what we're seeing here, that, 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 that all of this is a testimony. The, the events that surround the people in this genealogy, as, as we talked about some of them already, should all focus us back on the wonders of this remarkable, powerful, providence-working God who is orchestrating all these things through these failures, through these people, through these sins, all of this to accomplish his ultimate purpose. Despite the sin, God's perfect plan to bring forth his son as the savior is never in jeopardy. Despite all of the, the poor decisions the things that happen along the way, at no time is God's eternal plan from before the foundation of the world, at no time is that plan suddenly in doubt because this has gone down a path that, that nobody could have forecast. This is God's providence at work in all of this, bringing Gentiles from idolatrous nations into the line of Jesus, taking Jewish kings who are committing abhorrent evil and still working through them so that his plan of redemption is not in any way thwarted. We've highlighted the, some of the low points in terms of the stories related to the people in these genealogies. There's, there's great moments as well of seeing God at work in them. There's certainly the, the faith of Abraham, the God's work in Abraham to bring him to that place of trusting God, believing that God would provide a sacrifice. There's the protective kindness of Boaz as he takes Ruth. He takes the, essentially the kindness of God and ministers it now to Ruth in his care for Ruth. Uh, there is the, the, the kings like Josiah and, and Hezekiah who institute reforms to try to call the people of Judah back to repentance and back to the true worship of God. And, and so there's all of these moments along the way, even God's salvation of the Israelites through David. But you and I know it's, it's not just the bad moments that, that tempt us to draw away from God or to forget God's providence or God's kindness. It's also the successes and the accomplishments, the good moments that, that we can forget God. We can forget that, that he is ultimately the one bringing us through this to accomplish his will and his purpose. It's in those moments that we can forget our need for him and imagine that we're pretty strong and pretty smart and revel in that. This, this genealogy, like any any list of men or women is filled with flawed people, but God and his sovereign, gracious plan to save are never sidetracked throughout some of Israel's darkest moments represented by some of the people in this genealogy. It never changes God's plan. In fact, as the, the quote we read a moment ago from Keener, that's such a wonderful quote, it points out, it, it really is only as we 
pause to see God at work in our lives, as we pause to meditate on the fact that God is working through us, that we actually find the substantial meaning in life that the world is seeking after. It is as we rest in the fact that our loving God is working through us and accomplishing his will through us, that we we pause and stand in awe of what meaning he has now brought to our lives by his good work. And and, and that's Keener's whole point. We're, We're reading about people here We're looking at their stories and thinking about them and reflecting on them because they're in the line of Christ. There's stories like this all the time and people like this all the time doing things like that. We now know them because God has powerfully used them all in this plan to bring about the birth of his son, Jesus Christ. And now there's such richness and meaning in their lives and in knowing them because of what we're seeing God do. And so too for you and I. A genealogy like this should reassure us of the sweet providence of God and how grateful we should be that God is working out his purposes in our lives, even in the midst of of the, the failures and the foolishness and when we fall back into the same sin that we've committed before and we're, we're, we're crushed by that and there's those moments when we feel like this is unredeemable. I have, I've crossed a bridge too far on this one. I've done something this time that it, nothing can come out of this. Nothing good can come out of this. And yet, what this genealogy says is, watch God work. Know that God in his sweet providence is still carrying out his purposes is still at work to bring what he defines as good in the lives of his people and what he defines as his greatness and glory being magnified through us. There's still hope. God's not left wondering when we fail what he's going to do next. He doesn't have to recalculate like our GPS does when we've turned down the wrong street and it has to send us all around. God, God's already at work in that through all things after the counsel of his will. And so Tamar's crude sin and a Gentile prostitute from Jericho and Jewish kings who take the nation far away from God and the worship of our God, how could they become integral parts in a plan established by God from before the foundation of the world to accomplish the most important thing in the world, which is the redemption of a people for himself? He's, he's orchestrating all of this. God's grace is displayed in Matthew's genealogy through his wise providence and second through his generous love. Daniel Doriani says, Jesus' genealogy includes great kings and sordid sinners. Regal as his lineage was, Jesus did not come to praise his forebearers, but to save them. We're going to get to verse 21 next week, but that's the, the verse where the angel says to Mary that you shall name him Jesus, for he will what? Save his people from their sins. You shall name him the Lord saves or God saves because he is coming to save people from their sins. The, the, the sin-scarred lives of, of the people in this genealogy are why Jesus came. Our sin is why Jesus came. He came to give himself as a ransom and to die in our place and to take the punishment that we deserve and to experience God's wrath for our sin. He came to rescue us. Your story may, may or may not sound as, as ugly as some of those on this list. But you and I are no better in, in our hearts look at this list and we can see the, the reflection back of our own idolatry, our own lust, our own anger, our idols, our selfishness. And Jesus in his love came to save sinners, came to rescue those who had already 
put their faith in, in God's object that he had set before them of a, of a coming Savior, and now for us and those who look back to the cross and see the Savior who gave his life in our place. You know the old saying, you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your relatives, right? Your family, right? Can you imagine being Jesus in heaven, the sinless, eternal, supernatural Son of God, and you're looking at this genealogy and knowing that you will come to earth and be born into this train wreck of a family, that this is what you are, you are coming to as you look at this genealogy? And yet Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his love in this while we were yet, what? Sinners, right? Christ died for us. While there was this line of people proceeding who had already committed their share of evil, even knowing that there was something coming, someone coming, while we who know the glories of Jesus Christ are conceived in sin and live in that sinful nature, Christ died for us in his gracious love. How remarkable is God's grace that his father sent, the father sent his son to be born as the offspring of a king who stole a man's wife and then took part in a conspiracy to murder him. That king had the very same need you and I do. Sin might be different than anything you've done, but his heart was no different. His need was no different. He needed a savior. He needed someone to satisfy God's justice and, and to experience God's wrath. And it is the same thing you and I need of Jesus Christ coming and dying on the cross for our sin and for David's and for Rahab's and for Ruth's. We know in Ephesians 3, Paul prays that believers would, would just begin to comprehend the depth and height and breadth of the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, that we would just sort of know it a little bit better of how much God loves us and what he has done in sending his son. And the love of God in Christ that saved so many of his ancestors is the love that you and I celebrate if you are trusting in Jesus Christ as your savior. If you are, in just a couple of minutes when we pause at the communion table, we are in that moment marveling at the gracious, generous love of God in Jesus Christ that he would come and give himself for us, that he would die in our place and make us to be sons and daughters of the living God now brought into that line and into that family. God's grace is displayed in this genealogy through his wise providence, his generous love, and then last, his expansive reach. We know, we've already said, Ruth was from Moab, a nation that's a constant thorn in the side of the Israelites that at no point bows the knee to the God of the Israelites. Rahab was not a Jew. She was a Gentile from Jericho. It's possible also that Tamar was a Canaanite. We don't know for sure. Her father-in-law, Judah, when he took a wife, took a Canaanite woman, which he was not supposed to do. That was the instructions in Scripture. And yet, Judah took a Canaanite wife, and then he took Tamar for his firstborn son's wife. And so we know that he had no particular um, resistance against disobeying God, and so she may well have been a Canaanite. And then there's Bathsheba married to a man named Uriah the Hittite. He served in David's army, so he is clearly loyal to David, though at some point in life his roots are amongst the Hittite people. It, it should not be lost on us that at the beginning of a gospel written primarily to a Jewish audience about their Messiah, it tells us very quickly that God's intention all along is seen in him bringing Gentiles into this story. 
I mean, we could track back to Abraham being called from Ur, but there's God bringing into the line of the Messiah Gentiles through whom Jesus will ultimately come. So if ethnic purity is some sort of standard of measurement here, Rahab and Ruth spoiled the stock. And and yet it is all to show that God in his expansive reach intends all along for this gospel to not be given an exclusive market, but to be spread to the nations. In God's economy, this is God's grace in saving people whom the Jews might well have regarded as aliens, as far from him, as outside perhaps even the the reach of his grace, and, and not so. God identifies them right here in the line of Jesus Christ and brings them in and uses them for his glory. Just as, the, just as this genealogy, this line of Christ, has its Gentile interlopers, here we stand. Most of us, not ethnically sons and daughters of Abraham, maybe some are, most of us are not, and we stand now as his children. Galatians chapter 3 says it so well, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Isn't that sweet? That, That here we are, brought in by God's grace and his expansive reach, now made to be sons and daughters of the living God, the Messiah, the sent one to the Jewish people has come, and he gave himself and said, now go into the nations and proclaim this gospel. Take it to the ends of the earth. We are here today as worshipers of the living God because of his grace and his expansive reach. This gospel that begins with the genealogy that says, son of David, son of Abraham, ends with Jesus Christ saying, make disciples of all nations. We've got a sweet privilege. I'll give you this as an application of this. If you came in the foyer this morning, you saw bags and bags of food. That is, that is such a wonderful testimony of God's kindness because we're going to, we've collected that food and then we'll get it together in baskets this week to give to families in this community who are struggling and, and to be able to reach out and show them the love of Christ and pray that God would give us opportunities to communicate with them. That, that we are doing this not, not merely to satisfy a physical need, but because we believe in a great and glorious Savior who has come to satisfy their greatest need through Jesus Christ. We've got a wonderful opportunity, as do you and your neighborhood, amongst your coworkers. We are the body of Christ. We are the ones who now live out the grace of God with that expansive reach in our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our families, to spread to those around us the coming of Jesus Christ, the one who came to die for sins, the one who came so that he would save his people from their sins. What great grace God has shown us through this list of names that are glorious testimonies of his good work. Let's pray. Father, we come before you humbled as a people. We could insert ourselves at any point along the story and our own sin were recorded for the generations to come would be there glaring telling our story, our failures, the times when we have not trusted you and we have acted out of self-sufficiency, acting in some arrogant way. Father, we, we see ourselves reflected in the individuals here, but we also do in the, in the individuals here like Abraham and others who, who came to believe your promises.
Father, for we here who are trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, we thank you that we can lay down our past in all of its sordid details, and we can lay down the sin that still entangles, that we continue by your grace and strength to to do battle with in your help, with your grace, that we can lay that down at the cross of Jesus Christ and know that we have whole forgiveness. We have hope and salvation from our sins through Jesus Christ. Father, may we be a people who love this gospel, who in love to our Savior carry out this reach, that we would love others, believing that in your kind and wise providence you are at work in our lives putting us in touch with people that we may not have chosen to be in touch with and somehow you've crossed our paths in order that we might love them and show them Christ. Help us this week to be aware in those moments to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for reminding us again that through all of the seasons of our lives, you are at work accomplishing your good and eternal purpose in and through your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.